All right, signs and wonders. I think this, this phrase and its signs and wonders happens something like 150 times in the scriptures, about 78 times in the Old Testament, I think 77 in the New Testament, where it's almost linked, like signs and wonders, as, as a code word. Uh, so we think of signs and wonders. You, you might have something in your mind that's different than what I would have in my mind. But when I think of signs and wonders, at least initially, I think of the beginning of the story of Israel. So what happens at the beginning of that story? I mean, you could go back to Abraham. I'm not going that far back. Where do you think of, where do you think of signs and wonders in the Old Testament? First, Moses and the Ten Commandments. And I think he actually gives us a lot of insight into what a sign and miracle is. So when you think of, when you think of signs and miracles, Moses, he's, he's in the desert. He sees a bush on fire. And he goes to investigate. And what happens? <laughs> and, and God initially says, get your, get your sandals off. You're on holy ground. Okay, so have you ever thought of this question? How is one to know the difference between a man sent from God and a raving lunatic or a serpent? Like, how do you know? I mean, I've always wondered that. Like, how do I know if this snake talking to me is actually a good snake or a bad snake? You're probably not ever wondering that, but that's, that's actually a legitimate question. Like, how do you know God's word is God's word and not the word of man? How do you know a prophet who speaks and tells the future? is actually God's prophet or a false prophet. If you read the Bible carefully, you know that there are prophets who tell the truth about the future who are not God's prophets. So that we have, at the, at the end, the book of Revelation, we have a man who's called the what? Well, so you have the, the Antichrist who clearly displaces and is against Christ, that's why he's the Antichrist, and he has a prophet, like kind of capital F, false prophet. And what does he do? He does signs and wonders. And, and so there's this, the question you and I should be having when we come to something like the Bible or come to anyone who says they have a message from God is, how do we know? So, so what, what is a sign and wonder about? So, so this is from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, I think is the, the, the EDT abbreviation there. So here's, here's the definition of what signs and wonders are. Signs and wonders in the New Testament are performed by God through Jesus, the apostles, and the church leaders. And here I, I've highlighted this. They didn't do that, I did. Such signs always carry significance. They are never without intention on God's part. Stated purposes seen in the New Testament include Jesus' accreditation by God, the confirmation of God's grace, the salvation he offers, the gospel's full proclamation to lead unbelievers to faith, the generation of awe and the strengthening of belief by the house of faith, and the marking of an apostle. Okay, so let me just pause. What we're talking about with signs and wonders is not, the super, not merely the supernatural um, work of God or the providential work of God in life. Now, here's what I, I am trying to say. If perhaps someone was dying of cancer in our church and we pray that God would rescue them and heal them, we are not discussing whether or not God does those healings. 
Right? That's, that's not a sign and a wonder. God does miraculous and providential things in the scriptures for which I, I don't think we have any theological problem, for instance, in James 5. When a person who's sick comes to the elders and the elders pray for them, and he says in such cases that person may be healed. I, I, I don't know that we always need to catalog that, but that is, that is outside of it's outside of our discussion, but it's theologically a, a different category than signs and wonders. Our God works, and sometimes he works through providence. Have any of you ever, like, almost died? <laughs> if you've been driving in Bakersfield for any number of years and you don't have your hand up, I'm amazed. I mean, like, there have been times where for whatever reason, you know, as you approach a stoplight, you see your light's green, and it just turned green, and you see some moron fly by, like at 70 miles an hour. And if you had been right in the front of that green light, you might have died. Is that a miracle? I would say it's an act of providence. Whatever reason, God slowed you down enough that you didn't get T-boned by someone who's not paying attention to street lights. That's not a miracle. In other words, a miracle would look something like this. You're driving through that green light, you look over and you see the headlights that are heading towards you at 65 miles an hour, and the car flies over your car and lands into the side and never hits you. That's a miracle. Breaks the laws of nature. If someone has that on video, it's an undeniable act of God. It is not merely God protecting you through the natural course of, of events. When something happens through, maybe we could say, what's natural course of events, that's called providence. You know, the fact that you are here safely is a grace of God. The fact that you woke up this morning is a grace of God, but generally speaking, we call that providence, God governing the world and steering it through just the kind of the natural working of his grace. And by natural, I mean he's not, like, interposed himself supernaturally. Could it be that the person that we're praying for who has cancer all of a sudden does not have cancer, and we would say that was a supernatural work of God. Sure. But it's not going to be called a sign and wonder, biblically speaking. It's just categorically different. Does God do miracles? Yes. Does he do them in our age? Let me answer that more softly than some of you might be tempted to. I see no biblical reason to say no. Did you hear me not say yes? I didn't say yes, and I'm not trying to be dicey. I just, I, I want to be thoughtful that we don't say more than the Bible says. Our God can work however he deems wise, but we really want to be submissive to Scripture. I think James 5 would indicate that healing can happen, particularly when God is putting his hand on someone to bring them to repentance, and through the work of sickness and affliction, that man or woman repents and may be healed. I, that could be a providential healing. I would think but with the way James talks about it, it could be miraculous. And again, I don't think anything in the Bible would tell us that that's not happening miraculously. That's not a sign and wonder. What's a sign and wonder? This is a really good definition. Such signs always carry... <clears throat> what's the front part of significance is one of the reasons I don't like this definition. Sign. <laughs> like, okay, the, the point of sign is, like street signs, they communicate something. You see a red octagon. It means it doesn't even have the word on there. 
you know you see that at a distance. You can't read the word. Some of you can't read the word anyway. <laughs> like, but you know that shape, that color, you stop. Okay, that's a sign. It's a street sign. No one, no one has any question what a sign means, but it communicates something. So we look at the scriptures and we see something like signs and wonders. The idea of wonder is this supernatural thing that, that defies natural circumstances so that we all wonder. It causes us to stop and consider. So a sign communicates. Signs and wonders are meant to communicate with a supernatural Make it a supernatural signature of God. Okay, here's Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says what we all should be thinking. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you, which is exactly what I would say if he showed up on our church on Sunday morning. Hey, Mark, the Lord told me. No, he didn't. <laughs> Stop it. Right? Like, like, if you have some guy coming out from nowhere who's like, the Lord is giving me a message for you. The first thing out of my mouth is, no, he didn't. And so Moses knows he's going to approach a whole bunch. I mean, you've, you've read your Old Testament. You know they're hard-hearted. You know that these people are not, like, soft, thoughtful, careful, cautious, loving people. You've read the Old Testament, right? Only a few days after he rescues them from Egypt, after the ten plagues, they're complaining and want to lynch the guy. It doesn't take him long at all. Let's say, the Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord hasn't said this. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So, he threw it on the ground. It is funny that Moses wrote this about Moses. <laughs> it's like, the, the prose is really rich. Throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. Can you just hear Moses' mind saying, no? So he put it out, put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. To yo. Moses really needs to work on his prose. To you, I must have deleted that somehow. God, I'm not going to worry about it right now. You guys all can guess that the word's you. Okay, so, so here's the, uh, another dictionary that I think also is helpful here. The most important uses of the word in Scripture are theological. They refer to an act of go, God, that puts, um, points to something beyond itself. Thus, signs that God performs uh, takes on the character of the miraculous. The true significant signs in the Bible um, are found in their functions. As acts of God, uh, the sign functions in one way or another to display his credibility. They reveal his power and glory. So, so this, like when you think of signs, think of something like a signature. Like God is signing in such a way that no one can fabricate it. Okay, so I think these are really helpful then. Acts 2.22. This is the apostle Peter preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, what's that word there? What does that mean? He was accredited, as in God said, this is my beloved son, hear him. And that's what he says at the baptism of Jesus, right? 
That's what the Bible says. But that's the point of what the miracles do as well. He was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Who did the miracles of Jesus? We need to be careful that we don't take all the miracles in the Gospels and make them proofs of Jesus' divine sonship. This verse says particularly that God was doing them probably through the agency of the Holy Spirit to affirm that Jesus was in fact God's servant. The word Isaiah would use to describe him, right? Here's another proof. Acts 14.3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly, talking about, I believe it's Paul and Barnabas at this point, who bore witness to the word of his grace, and God was granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So, so the Lord does what? He bears witness. Well, how, how do you believe these these witnesses that are telling you to trust in Jesus, he is the Lamb of God. If you believe in him, you'll be saved. I mean, there were something over a hundred false messiahs in Israel's history. And Jesus is like a regular name. You know, it's like Steve in our country. <laughs> so, like, there's another Steve. It's not a very unique name. And so, like, the, the idea of Jesus being this special figure who could be trusted in, who is actually God's agent, the Son of God, I mean, who's going to believe in a Messiah named Steve? That, that's really kind of the battle the apostles have, this uphill battle of preaching a message about a particular man named Jesus, that he is the Christ, and that despite his, his humble birth, which most people misunderstood as being a Galilean, which is kind of like, uh, you know, hillbilly land, uneducated. I mean, when, when Jesus is criticized, no good thing comes from Nazareth. Well, how, how did people believe in him? Well, God witnessed, testified. Acts 15, 12. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, this is in the context of a theological debate where the church is trying to figure out how to respond to Gentiles in reference to the gospel and salvation and how they, how they bring Gentiles into the people of faith. Like, what, what, is, what is required of them? Do they have to become Jewish? Do they have to do circumcision? Do they have to come to the temple? What should we tell these, these Gentiles? They, they grew up in a culture where Gentiles were unclean. Not only did you not spiritually associate with them, you don't touch them. I mean, when the Samaritan woman, Syrophoenician woman, says something like, well, think about what Jesus says to her first. Right? He's, he's ministering and he says, basically, I've come for Israel not for dogs? Does that feel a little offensive to you? <laughs> like, can you imagine if you overheard me saying that to someone? I'm sorry, you're not a member of Crossway. I don't serve dogs. You'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah, Pastor, you're not allowed to say that. That's Jesus. But, but he's, he's expressing a cultural divide between Gentiles and Jews, and he's saying, my ministry is to the Jewish people. He's actually not insulting or quite as bad as maybe our culture would feel it, but he is really clearly saying, you're not the people I'm called to. 
And so they, they're, they're struggling with how do we know the Gentiles are actually included by God's plan and that this isn't human overreach? And how do they know? God is communicating through signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The apostle Paul is telling them, I'm a proper apostle. I put the word proper there. Like this morning, Epaphroditus was called an apostle. So I think maybe, I, I think usually like uppercase A, apostle, and lowercase A, like all of us should be sent people. God has called us to be representatives in his world for his message and his son. But there are people, maybe we call particularly the 12, like capital A apostles that are for the founding of the church, Ephesians 2.20 says. Those apostles are not reproduced. They had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They had to be uh, witnesses of his resurrection. And they had to be commissioned and called by him particularly. And apparently, there was accrediting signs that the apostle did that are unique to the apostles, right? The signs of a true apostle. I would assume that means that no one else in the church could reproduce the, and I don't know if it was because of the multiplicity or their particular gifts that were theirs alone, but whatever it was, it set them apart. So the church goes, oh, he's a true one, as opposed to just a normally gifted church member, right? Okay, so that's, that's what signs do. Signs communicate. God is communicating a lot, even Hebrews 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness. So there's three witnesses. What's required in a court of law to, to bring about a righteous judgment? How many witnesses? At the least two or three. So here we have this assembly of witnesses. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. The apostles and eyewitnesses. And God bore witness. How did he bear witness? The miraculous power, the signs and wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed. Oh, I know what it is. You're right, Charity. I, I got no power over this thing right now. I can just hit left and right. There's a little box that's covering it all. So what is prophecy or prophet? So it's kind of changing, changing tracks here a little bit because I think this is relevant particularly to the issue of tongues. So what is prophecy? Anyone have a definition? Maybe you should say better, what's a prophet? I think that will help us get to what prophecy is. Okay, Liz said something about speaking God's truth. Somebody foretells the future. A mouthpiece for God. Okay. I think we need to improve our definitions a little bit, but you're all on the right track. Um, and I think this is helpful because if I just took what your definition said, like, for instance, if we kind of took Rudy and Liz's, there's a problem in the sense that we would all be prophets if we just opened up our Bibles and read. Because we'd be truth speaking and we'd be speaking God's message. You know, we could be God's mouthpieces if we just read our Bibles. And I think we all intuitively know that it's not a prophet then. Right? There's got to be more to it than that. I think this is helpful. Um, a prophet is one who speaks for, and it says before. So like, the point is, is like, it's preceding the event oftentimes. Or the one who speaks for God. And I think it's kind of hitting kind of two different thoughts there. Someone who predicts 
as well as someone who proclaims for God. But, but then, like a paragraph later, it says, by inspiration, God speaks to the prophet who has to transmit exactly what he receives. I think that's actually a really helpful thought, although I'm not comfortable with the word inspiration being used there. But, but let me see if I can, I can process this for you. A prophet is someone who receives direct revelation from God and then transmits it accurately. Okay, so that's where I think we, we often in our idea of prophecy miss that first part. In order to be a prophet, I have to do what? Receive special and direct revelation from God. So for instance, in the Bible, God tells Moses what to say. That makes him a prophet when he then says it. When I read the Bible and then say, here's what God said, not a prophet. I have not particularly received a special revelation. I am merely expounding God's already delivered revelation. All right? That makes me a preacher, not a prophet. So that's where I, I, I hear New Testament definitions, and I think they're flawed. Because they, they reduce prophecy to something that everyone in the church can experience simply by reading their Bibles. But it's to, it's to receive direct revelation and then I think be given, generally speaking, the task of proclaiming it to God's people. Occasionally, like with Daniel, he gets special revelation and God says, seal it. Don't share it. Which that has to be so frustrating. <laughs> like, you have this incredible insight into the future and God's like, zip it. You just got to keep it bottled up. Like, I could decode Daniel, but I can't. That'd be really frustrating for Daniel. So, like, this is, this is I, th I think the way I'm, I'm understanding the Bible's presentation of it, that prophetic ministry is, generally speaking, a missionary appointed by God to receive special revelation and communicate that revelation accurately. Like, I, I'm including those three parts in there. Let me use Isaiah as an example here. <laughs> this, is, this is rough. I'm so glad I'm not a prophet. So, at that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah. The son of Amos saying, go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years. That's rough. As a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered in the nakedness of Egypt. Or, in the, or the nakedness of Egypt. So, aren't you glad I don't do sermon illustrations like that? <laughs> Whew. That box is killing me. So, so, if I can just break down Isaiah's pattern here. Isaiah's chosen by God. I don't think any of us misses choosing. That's why it's an easy example for us to pick. Low-hanging fruit here. Isaiah 6, God calls Isaiah. His call to ministry is really, um, it's both precious in the declaration of who God is, but also very insightful. That God calls messengers not always to fruitful ministries. I think it's right to call, you know, like ask the Lord for fruit, to ask the Lord to redeem and rescue people through the ministry of his servants. But Isaiah's ministry was actually, in many ways, one of judgment, wasn't it? He goes and it's like, the clearer he preaches, the more cloudy their minds get. The more he preaches to soften and break up the hardness of their hearts, the more firm the concrete of their souls become. The more he preaches that their ears might be open to God's grace, the more they become deaf to the message. 
And God sends him, and that's his commission. Man, whew, that'd be very discouraging. So you see really clearly the Lord speaks to Isaiah. Um, so Isaiah communicates truth. By Isaiah, then, this happens. He even does it through deeds. His prophetic ministry is not merely words. My servant Isaiah has walked naked, barefoot, three years as a sign, communicated, a portent. And a clear proposition, so shall the king of Assyria lead away something. I don't know why it says Baptist. That's clearly not in Isaiah. Oh, I, I don't know what it says. I, I, I'm very confused by my own notes here, so please forgive the... That would be Isaiah 22, probably 4. I, I know what probably happened is I have multiple documents open, and I'm sure I was typing something else, but... I'm going to take you to Isaiah anyway. Look at Isaiah 22. I don't have this verse in our notes. I see why I usually don't let you go look at my notes. So Isaiah 22. Look at verse 15. If you're there with me. This is, this is how we know we have a prophet. What, is, what does he say in verse 15? Thus says the Lord. I'm not necessarily a fan of the way the ESV translate that. I mean, any of you saying thus? I spoke thusly the other day. No, we, it's just not a normal word, but, but maybe we'd say it this way. This is what the Lord says. Like, it's, it's content who spoke. Who is his mouthpiece? The prophet. Okay, so, so as we're thinking through what a prophet is, I mean, that's really our goal here, is that we would have this understanding that a prophet is someone who receives revelation from God, communicates it accurately to God's people. That's the essence of what it was to be a prophet. But God, yes, they receive revelation from God, and they communicate it accurately. So when we come to the New Testament, and we have prophets springing up, there's this Old Testament theology of what a prophet is. They all get it. This is not a new thing. This is, in fact, something that there's a long heritage that goes all the way back to the very beginning books of the Bible, where you see Moses in his prophetic ministry, where God is establishing him and speaking through him and, and working. So I'm going to give you at least three tests for a prophet. My understanding in the Old Testament was you killed by community stoning anyone who is a false prophet. Now, this is not something you take lightly. Now, I am not advocating for stoning of anyone in this day and age, but I do think it would really reduce the number of false prophets we hear. Okay, so first, accuracy. Deuteronomy 18.22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And again, I think the law would teach them, drag him outside the city gates, which would indicate an adjudication, right? City gates are not just like, take him outside the city and kill him. The city gates would be where you make decisions. It'd be like, there, there's some type of, of evaluation. This isn't merely like someone's like, you know, I think the Packers are going to win the Super Bowl. And then you stone him because they don't win the Super Bowl. Prophetic faithfulness. Deuteronomy 13 says, 
If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, now let's just stop. What happened? A prophet receives some type of revelation, and it comes true. And then he says, let's go after other gods, which you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. So this is a fantastic help for us wondering about false prophets. False prophets are by whose design? Guys, I'm not saying he's inspiring them. I don't know how to answer that question precisely. But I assume that this is probably demonic. That this is a permission by the Lord to give Satan freedom to predict accurately the future through his agents and allowing those agents access to his people. Is that a little scary to you? It should be. It should be sobering. And if you, if you, if you saw someone who claimed to be Christian among our churches declaring the future with accuracy and certainty, are you telling me there wouldn't be an uprising following after him? And I'm not sure in our culture that we have the doctrinal muscle <coughs> to resist a false teaching if it were subtle. <coughs> Excuse me, but I think if it was blatant on the front end, we wouldn't believe it. But the explosion of denominations, and especially I would say <coughs> cultish ones, and so I'm not trying to be unkind, but let me be clear. Like I would include Seventh-day Adventists, some of, some of the, the more Christianized um, elements, but particularly Mormonism, um, Jehovah's Witnesses. These are cults. You know what they all have in common? And maybe not Seventh-day Adventists as much, but I believe so. <coughs> they have revelation. So I think, think Mormons. What happens in New York in the 1800s? <coughs> and what happens with Joseph Smith? He gets golden tablets, man. An angel talks to him. And even were that true, this man fails this test. Why? Because, because he wrecks the exclusive and precious doctrines of a triune God. Right? You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. Keep his commandments, obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Last test. Jesus gives it. Okay, so this is in the passage that says don't judge. Like, broad context here. Matthew 7, I think this is helpful. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruit. You know false prophets. I mean, that's the context here, right? Beware of false prophets. That's what he says. Now he doesn't give a doctrinal test. He doesn't give a future-telling test. What is the test? Their deeds will expose them. And I would assume, as with Jesus' point here, 
that we are to evaluate those who stand and speak for God on the basis of character. It shouldn't surprise us that we have qualifications for shepherds and for deacons in the New Testament. Because if you're going to stand and lead and minister among the people of God, we want to make sure that you're not wearing a sheep costume. But you're really a wolf. But, but that's, that requires some level of judgmentalism. Right? Like, I mean, it's probably the wrong word to say because it has such a, a, a context of judgmentalism. But, I mean, how does that look in a church? A man or a woman seems sweet, effective in ministry, but we're seeing signs on social media and within their life that there's garbage going on and their soul is actually very self-centered and proud, and we say, you're a wolf? Can you imagine that going down in a church and the rest of the church being like, no, you're judgy. Don't point your finger at other people. You need to deal with your, yourself. And calling upon people not to judge others would be, to me, very today. But the fact is, Jesus is very clear. Look at the prophet's character. Okay, so when we come to the New Testament and we recognize what God is doing in the prophetic ministry of the New Testament, I'm going to take you to a couple passages just to tease next week. Look with me in Acts 20. Oh boy, maybe Acts 21. Yes, Acts 21. Verse 8. <clears throat> this is one of those prophetic moments in the New Testament that's a lot of fun in the sense that it's not like an apostle, it's not a normal prophetic moment where it's like John and we have scripture. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So I, I do think we tend sometimes to st like struggle with how women should be involved in ministry. These, these are prophetesses prophesying. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Does that formula sound familiar? It's used over 400 times in the Bible, like just thus says the Lord. This is relatively unique in the sense that he says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, that's Paul, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for? my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So here Agabus is giving a very particular prophecy about Paul's impending um, imprisonment and capture by the Jews and prosecution by the Roman Empire. So Agabus comes and does this both symbolic and verbal prophecy. And notice how he enters into that moment. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit. I have revelation from God, and I'm going to communicate it to this group of people, including Paul. And he does that. And guess what happens? 
this. This is what happens. Paul's arrested, he's captured, and he's imprisoned by the Romans. All right, I want to take you to Ephesians 2.20 as part of why I think this is really essential for us theologically to grab a hold of, and then we'll end for the night. Ephesians 2.20. I'm going to back up. My memory has Ephesians 2.20 simply because it's like the, the central like line for the th- uh, my thinking, but um, let me go back so we can build a little context here. Let's go back to verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who are those who are far off? Right, particularly he's talking about the Ephesians, but we'd say the Gentiles, right? Who are far off. And peace to those who were near. That would be the the Jewish people. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's speaking of the church, isn't he? The Jews and Gentiles together in this new household of faith. And so then he also leads into that analogy of the household, Well, what's the foundation of that household? The theological revelatory foundation of that household is what? Christ is the cornerstone, so let's not not, uh, ignore Christ, because we might. What agents does Christ use? Apostles and prophets. And and I think for, for us, as we're thinking through how we approach the gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge that we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that we recognize that these gifts are particularly for a purpose. And, and you'll see in 1 Corinthians 14 that tongues are given as a sign, which means they, they have a significance beyond the actual tongue speaking. They're a signal that, that communicates something about what God is doing. And so we want to evaluate that in the weeks to come too. All right, I have five minutes. No, I don't. I will, I will take a couple questions if there are any on what we covered. Any questions? Yeah. I'm, say, say that again. There is prophecy yet to be filled. Absolutely. Sure, accuracy. That's an interesting question. If we're going to use someone like Daniel, who has a lot of prophecy still yet to come, right? There is some that has come to pass. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think if a prophet gave, like, for instance, if a prophet gave a prophecy for, like, you know, in, in the year 8,612, and he's a prophet living today, what, we have to live 6,000 years to val- validate him? We just would ignore him. 
until it comes true, but we also wouldn't stone him. It's like, okay, the jury's out. You've got 6,000 years. And I think there would be a sense in which most of the prophets had credibility initially. I'm like, again, you think of Daniel. His ministry had credibility even within unbelievers. Like he's interpreting dreams accurately. He, you know, like he's foretelling. He's, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. And there's, there's validation of someone like Daniel immediately. Haley? Right, right, there's, this is not an exhaustive list of ways we know that the Bible is true. These are particular to prophecy and prophets. So, like, you evaluate a prophet's ministry based on the orthodoxy, in other words, does it align with the rest of Scripture, on the character of the prophet, and on the accuracy of what has been said. And if he gets any of those wrong, you reject him. It, uh, probably in the test of orthodoxy more than anything it would be, but, but I think the scripture is relatively silent on that. I think that's a presumed element for the believer, but, but really that's something that becomes much more clear in the New Testament. Although I think, I mean, there's certain passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's spirit giving light to the eyes, like in Psalm 119, things like that, but what? No, like as a church, What? Well, that's, that's the whole case I'm making. That there's no prophets today. Um, but, but, but again, if we're... No, but, but I, I guess if you want to know why this case is actually valuable for us to recognize and understand, I think especially over the last 130 years, since really, um, what is it, Kansas and then Azusa Street, and there's this explosion of interest and fascination with the miraculous, the tongues, the healing type of gifts, where you go throughout all of church history, only kind of aberrant strains and weird kind of offshoots of the church ever had any of this stuff. But the main core, like the trunk of historical believers who are faithful to Christ, you weren't seeing this stuff from after the first century until really about, was it, Azusa's like 1903, 1906? Um, where it just like starts proliferating. So if you, if you think through um, kind of eras, uh, you have kind of that Azusa Street initial stuff. That's kind of first wave. And this is, I think, Peter Wagner's the one that defines it this way. <coughs> um, and then in the 40s, you have the explosion of kind of charismatic stuff. And then you have vineyard churches in the, um, I think, 60s and 70s. And that's kind of the third wave. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're, we're kind of in that third wave probably at the end of the third wave, maybe there's a fourth wave, and I'm just unaware of what it would be called. But Wayne Grudem, who is, who's, I, I appreciate his systematic theology, is very, very easy to read, and I think well, well spoken. He's actually from Vineyard Churches. Uh, so he kind of has that theological background. And I think on this stuff, he's, I think he's demonstrably wrong and incorrect. 
You know, so as, as much as I appreciate his systematic theology, he just misses the boat on this one. Um, you know, but, but we have good and godly men that we really appreciate who we disagree with, and I would say we should disagree with some of them. Others of them, it probably just reminds us we should be very humble because they know way more and have spent way more time and are godly people, and we should be careful not to presume that people who disagree with us are incorrect. But I think Grudem, there, there's ways in which, um, like for instance, prophecy, he thinks New Testament prophets can get it wrong and still be prophets. In the Old Testament, you know what you do with a prophet who gets it wrong? You drag him to the city gates and you stone him. They get it wrong once. And you only hear them get it wrong once because they don't speak again. In the New Testament, what's happening is because, and here's my point, I don't think we have a legitimate expression of prophecy. And so we have to soften the definition so that we don't kill people, at least ministerially. Right? Like, if I'm going to predict, again, something crazy like the Packers win the Super Bowl, and then it doesn't happen, then all of a sudden we've got to redefine how we measure what a good prophet is, because clearly I'm a good prophet. And that's really, to me, to me what Grudem is doing, is, is he's, he's lowering the bar of God's revelation and definitions of what a prophet is because it doesn't fit his, his agenda and his theological commitments. And, and I think that's where, to me, that's very sobering. Because I think Wayne Grudem is probably a very godly man. And, and I think his commitments and his background is moving him to, to not submit to Scripture, but try to get Scripture to make sense to his system. So, um, yeah, so our church doctrinal position is cessationism. It doesn't mean God is in a box. It doesn't mean God cannot do supernatural things today. I think he does do supernatural things today. The fact that you're all sitting in this room listening to a lecture on signs and wonders is a sign that God has done something in your souls. Right? He's made you new and given you a thirst for his word and desire to obey him and love him and know his people and pray with them and worship with them. That is a supernatural work. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You now love the Lord Jesus Christ. You have turned from idols to serve the living God. That's, that's miraculous, if anything ever is. So God is at work today. But I think sometimes that's a criticism you'd hear against cessationism, that somehow God is limited or not doing the supernatural. Um, I think he's just not doing the supernatural things that others want him to do. So, all right. Well, let's, let's be done with questions. If you have any more questions, you can save them for next week or talk to me personally. Let's, let's pray and be done. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would do the gracious work of speaking to our hearts through your scripture. Help us to be students of your Bible, to read it faithfully, to know the words of life, and to give them access by submitting and eagerly seeking uh, to understand the word through the grace of illumination by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, teach us, minister to our souls and instruct us, and then help us to obey, give us strength in our will to do what we should do, that we might please you, and give us the grace and supply the power to accomplish those tasks you've put in front of us. Help us to love our families. Help us to speak carefully and thoughtfully to them. Help us to be uh, supporting and encouraging one another so that we are faithful to the bride of Christ and to the missionaries and ministers who faithfully speak and teach your message. Lord, help us to be those who love Christ and are marked by Christ-likeness in our character. In Jesus' name, amen.